Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Client Earth is an environmental law charity with a unique approach using the law to create powerful change that protects life on Earth. To meet the global challenges facing our planet, Client Earth used the power of the law to change systems for lasting change, informing, implementing and enforcing law and advising decision makers. Client Earth believes that a future in which people and planet thrive together isn't just possible, it's essential. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Robert Eccles to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Robert is a leading authority on corporate purpose and integration of environmental, social and governance factors in resource allocation decisions by companies and investors. He's visiting Professor of Management Practice at Said Business School, the University of Oxford, was previously Professor of Management Practice at Harvard Business School. He is the founding chairman of the Sustainability Accounts Standards Board, SASB, and one of the founders of the International Integrated Reporting Council. So thank you very much, Robert, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Pleasure to be here, Virgil. Good to talk to you again, sir. Yes, indeed. So um, maybe just to begin, if you can uh, tell us a little bit about your background, the work that you do, and and then we get on to maybe what's on your mind at the moment. Okay, so I'll be quick because it's a, it's a long story for going to 70s. So I'm a child of the 60s. I was an activist in the 60s. Uh, I'm a different kind of activist now. I still have a beard. I don't have a ponytail. I don't have enough hair. My beard is gray. I think of myself as a capital market activist. And what I'm looking to do is what are those levers? to create system-level change in how resource allocation decisions are made by companies and investors to create a more sustainable society. I'm a visiting professor of management practice at Oxford. I was a tenured professor at Harvard Business School, senior advisor to BCG, and I'm the chair, and it's interesting, we want to get this more, I'm the chair of KKR's Sustainability Expert Advisory Council, and I think there's some very interesting things going on in private equity. In fact, I just completed a major research project and have an article, a big article coming out in the Harvard Business Review this summer. So, um, and I'm starting a research project on activist investors. So it's kind of what I'm up to. Excellent. Excellent. Very interesting. Maybe before we go into uh, some of the specific areas that you've been working on, you know, we're obviously we're in the middle of this uh, t- terrible Russian invasion in Ukraine, and uh, we've still got COVID going on and, and all kinds of interrelated social economic and political uh, issues but i'm just wondering from a maybe just from a, a more environmental and climate perspective um what is it that worries you the most keeps you awake uh, about the current situation i mean i think i have the same worries about climate as other people do um you know kind of 2050 and 1.5 and two degrees and stuff i may my view on this has kind of evolved a little bit. I mean, I think the war in Ukraine is is part of it, but I think there's other issues. It feels to me that this has become, I mean, it's been for a long time, but a very politicized debate. And, and I wonder, and I'm not an expert on climate, but I'm working with some people on maybe a kind of paper for lay people like me on the energy transition. I wonder if we're being realistic enough about the extent to which we're going to need natural gas, maybe even nuclear, for you know a fairly long period of time, um, and it's kind of hard to 
to cut through strongly held views on both sides from, you know, drill, baby drill on the one hand to, you know, look at this mess because we didn't drill for enough oil. And then people saying, well, we have to get to net zero. Um, but, you know, what do you do when you've got a bunch of countries like Germany dependent upon Russia for oil? Would you rather have natural gas coming from the U.S. or would you rather have, you know, Russia getting resources to continue to invade Ukraine? I, I think this whole thing in Ukraine is an interesting wake-up call, both around climate, around ESG in general. Yeah, yeah. And where do you find some seeds of optimism? You've been involved in this a world for many decades you've been uh you know uh a key a key voice in the sustainability agenda in uh, ESG thinking there is uh considerable momentum uh in 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 that area now what where do you or do you uh, find seeds of optimism I'm a glasses half full kind of guy so you know I try to I try to be optimistic I'm Quite encouraged by the work that's being done by the SEC and the ISSB and by AFRAC. That's not in the public domain yet, so we'll see what happens there. I think getting to standards for disclosure around climate's a big deal. We can get into the weeds on that more later if you want. It's not a silver bullet. I mean, if you have standards for reporting on carbon emissions, it doesn't mean that a company or an investor has net zero targets. It doesn't replace the need for carbon markets and carbon taxes and sensible public policy. But it's a big deal, right? We take financial reporting for granted, and we always had it, and we haven't. And we've agreed upon how we're going to do revenue recognition and all this other stuff. And we don't have that for climate. So I think as a as a necessary but not sufficient condition, if we could get a global baseline for companies to be reporting on their carbon emissions, scope one, two, and three, uh, it'll be highly contested. You know, there's no technically right answer. There's, you know, technically wrong answers. Um, you've already seen the Sturm and Drong that's happening with the SEC's report and the Attorney General of West Virginia is going to sue and, and the ISSB, you know, comes out with theirs and how do they compare to each other and what is FRAG going to do? Standard setting has always been it's contentious, fractious process. People don't recognize how true that is for financial reporting, um, there's technical issues, there's ideological issues. Uh, it's never done. You know, the, the debate continues. That's true in financial reporting. Standards are interpreted, standards are changed, but at least you've got a baseline. The thing I always like to say is these are, these are social constructs. I mean, revenue recognition is a particular social construct. IFRS does it one way, US GAAP does it another way. They're kind of about the same, but these aren't derived from the laws of physics. We've just agreed that this is how we're going to represent the revenues of a company. And so we've got a shared social consensus on that. Same thing with earnings, but then look what happens. Companies report non-GAAP earnings. Analysts take the financial statements as just the starting point and do a bunch of analysis and that's fine. But at least we have a starting point. We haven't had that starting point for sustainability information. And let's start with carbon, because that's what the SEC and the ISSB are focused on. Probably FRAG as well. It might be a little bit broader. So getting that plank in place, I think, is great. As I said, it's a necessary, not sufficient condition. But then as investors engage with companies, to the extent companies are putting out targets, for carbon reduction scope one, two, and even three by such and such a date, we'll have the information to 
assess, just like we can assess their revenues and their earnings, assess the extent to which they're accomplishing the objectives that they've committed themselves to, and we can compare them to other companies. So it's, uh, I think it's a huge step forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel good about that. What role do you see for corporations in dealing with our environmental crises? I mean, you know, in some ways it's it's pretty obvious, but then there's, you know, kind of, you know, tricky issues around fiduciary duty, which gets misunderstood by people. Um, you know, companies produce products and services, and in doing so, they use water and they create carbon emissions. And so I think that the fundamental question is to what extent should companies be held responsible for the negative externalities that they're producing um, that aren't being captured by by taxes or by law, right? And so that pressure is going to have to come from investors. It's going to have to come from NGOs. I think if you get enough of that kind of pressure on companies, then what you need is for companies, because they, they have to continue to make money. You know, we're all dependent upon companies to generate value. You know, we all own, you know, stocks and bonds in various ways directly or through pension funds or whatever. So they have to be sustainable on an economic basis. But I think in many cases, probably most cases, there's going to have to be changes in their business models so that they're less resource intensive, so that they're producing less negative externalities. So this may mean, you know, very different kind of business models. Um, that, that need to be developed. I mean, you're kind of seeing that in oil and gas. You're seeing that. It's kind of another side example that we can go into if you want with tobacco. I think I mentioned I'm an advisor to Philip Morris International. It's very controversial. I think what they're doing is fascinating. Um, to make these big transformations, it takes time. Investors need to be supportive of the time it takes to make the transformation. So I think it's kind of a good test to investors because they're all saying, listen, we've got this long-term view. But then they need to take that attitude and not get overly fussed by quarterly earnings. We saw what Unilever went through, uh, which I thought was kind of silly, and I wrote about that. Um, and then there's a question of, do the board of directors really understand that their fiduciary duty is to the corporation? That's a bit more nuanced in the United States as the corporation and shareholders. But there still is this prevailing notion from you know, Milton Friedman and you know, financial economics and really the ideology of the finance profession on the academic side that you know what directors are supposed to do is to make sure shareholders are happy particularly in the short term no their duty is to the corporation to the long-term interests of the corporation and i think having a better understanding of that on the part of the board of directors so that they're supportive of or even encouraging the management team to rethink more fundamentally what the business models are that they have in place would be a good thing my, my sense is i'm not sure most directors and boards are there yet though well, that's a very interesting point and one I, I certainly want to discuss um, because it's a little bit at the heart of this, isn't it, really, what, what corporations are about um, and the legal framework in which they operate. Um, uh, interesting what you said. Um, I was wondering what you thought of uh, uh, Mark Carney, uh, former Bank of England head, who said net zero represents the greatest commercial opportunity of our age. Um, do, do, would, you, would you agree? You know, gosh, I don't know. To be honest, that's a little bit above, above my pay grade. I think it's a rallying cry. It's good. Um, but when you sort of translate that down into investments that are made, I, gosh, you know, I mean, I, I just don't know. Because, you know, when I look at things like, you know, the EU taxonomy and I look at things like, you know, SFDR Article 8 and particularly Article 9, 
is there an opportunity to invest a bunch of capital to help achieve a net zero world? I think that's true. Is it the biggest opportunity of all time? Who knows, right? Is it bigger than the Industrial Revolution? I don't know. I mean, the big question for me is it's one thing to say, okay, here's all these great technologies that you can invest in and it's solar and it's wind and it's recycling, it's whatever it is. But what about all of those assets that are still sitting out there in oil and gas companies and mining companies and steel companies and cement companies? How do we think about that? Divesting these assets so that you can get as an investor to net zero is just passing the baton. It's making your problem somebody else's problem. You don't see people getting really excited about, okay, I'm going to invest in this oil and gas company or the steel company. I'm going to press them and I'm going to engage with them so that they change their business model. There's still a lot of capital tied up there. And so a big piece that's missing for me is what is the so-called transition financing or investing or whatever you want to call it so that you can make this these existing industries with these existing business models transform these models as opposed to saying, well, I'm going to sell all my oil and gas stocks and I'm going to go buy a bunch of you know, wind and solar stocks. It just doesn't make sense to me. Right. Right. Um, we'll come back to that because that's a very important question. I think, as you say, this um, reliance on existing sources of uh, energy and uh, new new sources and how that might change. Um, now, g- getting to uh, a very interesting area, which is uh, really, uh, I guess, uh, uh, topical, at least in the finance world of finance uh, uh, and indeed uh, generally, is this question of ESG, something you've been thinking about um, and writing about for some time, shall we say. Um, I'm just wondering, can you maybe explain for listeners what broadly ESG is about and why it matters? I mean, that's, you know, become quite debatable, as you know. Let me let me start kind of at a very high level. So ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And the basic premise there is that if you're paying attention to those issues that are material to your sector, so it'd be, you know, oil and gas emissions, if you're a big manufacturing company, or only gas company, it wouldn't be material to a pharmaceutical company. Uh, from a kind of from a narrow investor perspective, not the universal owner, we can get into that. It would be safety and clinical trials. You know, there's a lot of research. I've done some, George Seraphim at Harvard Business School has done a lot more that shows companies that are performing well on those environmental, social, and governance issues that are material to their sector and their business model. Their financial performance is better. ESG is really about a company's operations and activities. It's not about the positive and negative externalities of its products and services. You know, operations and activities can produce negative externalities. Uh, Impact is different than ESG. Impact is those, you know, positive externalities that are being created. When you put it in historical perspective, I mean, there's there's a lot of greenwashing, ESG funds that are not well-defined. They go, oh, you know, here's a green fund. We don't own any tobacco and oil and gas and landmines, but, you know, we're sort of loaded up with a bunch of fangs that have got a whole bunch of other issues we can get into. So it's a green fund. So that's not good. And regulators are looking at that. But it wasn't that long ago. If you said ESG, people wouldn't know what it was. Or if you said sustainability, the knee-jerk reaction was, okay, I'm losing money. This is philanthropy, you know, this is a transfer payment, and you still get that ideology from the right in the United States that came up with that Department of Labor uh, issue, you know, under Trump. And so for the most part, you know, most people have recognized that if a company is going to be able to create value over the long term, 
for its shareholders and its own self-interest. They better pay attention to other stakeholders, customers, suppliers, the employees, everybody wants the millennials, so it can continue to do so. So I think this shift from we're just assuming sustainability is tree hugging and philanthropy to no done right and you can do it wrong and you can greenwash it, but done right, you know, it's good for long-term shareholder value creation. Yeah, and it's uh, it, it's big, and uh, it's attracting a lot of uh, money. A lot of money is going into it now. I, I guess one thing that I find interesting is that, um, and I guess when I was first exposed to the idea, um, I, I thought it, it it had more to do with um, the, the, what you mentioned there that isn't included, and and maybe not so many people are are, are aware of this, or not everyone's aware of this. That doesn't necessarily or doesn't uh, include the externalities. So I know people who think, you know, an ESG fund means it's a good fund. It's not going to do things that have bad environmental impacts. But as I understand it, it's really much more about the risk to the company due to ESG factors, which is quite a different thing. It is a different thing. I mean, let me take tobacco as an example. As I said, I'm an advisor to Philip Morris International. So if you look at a tobacco company, you know, what is the product that tobacco companies have? It's cigarettes. Nobody needs to be convinced about the negative externalities of cigarettes. You know, people die younger. People get all of these awful diseases. So you could be a tobacco company and you could be really buttoned down from an ESG point of view. You've got no child labor in your tobacco supply chain and your tobacco farms. Uh, you know, very responsible in terms of the use of water, gender pay equity, diverse board, Um don't have a lot of carbon emissions in the way you cure your tobacco. So from these kind of operations and activities, you could be running a very responsible tobacco company, but you're you're still selling cigarettes, right? You know, that produce these major, major negative externalities. So with PMI, and I think they're far ahead of the other tobacco companies, but I see this as the direction of travel. Uh, what they said is, look, you know, our biggest sustainability issue is the negative externalities of our products. So, you know, long story over 20 years, they developed something, you know, called ICOS, which is a heated tobacco product, which isn't vaping. People get confused about between the two. It's like a little cigarette that goes into a metal holder. It's heated because what people are addicted to is the nicotine. What they're um, what kills them is the burning of the tobacco. So people that have got this and nicotine is very addictive. It's like heroin and cocaine. So people that are addicted to nicotine, they can use ICOS that replicates the experience of what it's like to smoke a cigarette. It's not harmless, but it's much less harmful. And PMI has made a commitment that by 2025, 26, more than half of their revenues will be from reducers products. They're going to have a billion dollars in non-nicotine products. They've learned as their business models transform from B2B to B2C, learned about how you deliver products into the human body. So things like ibuprofen are more are delivered better as a, Economies of mess. So, this is a dramatic transformation where, and it's easy to be cynical about the tobacco industry because, in a lot of ways, they earned it over 30 years of you know line and assembling. But a billion people smoke cigarettes, and who projects it to be constant? Governments are duplicitous. They all sign on to the WHO framework convention and tobacco control and say, oh, we're not going to engage with the tobacco industry. While well, 70% of the cost of a package of cigarettes is excise taxes, that the governments are all collecting very happily every year. And very little of that is spent on tobacco control programs. So I'm saying, look, if a tobacco company, they've published a statement of purpose by their board of directors, it's in their proxy statement. They've got an integrated report that give targets. If a tobacco company can take that kind of responsibility 
and their goal is to have a smoke-free world, create a smoke-free future, and, and basically fundamentally change from cigarettes to reduced risk products to non-nicotine products. It's an especially dramatic example. It's, um, it's a controversial example. Every company produces externalities. What about all of these you know, fast food and beverage companies? You know, I think more people die of obesity than they do of cigarette smoking last time I read. So I think if companies were focused on, yes, let's manage our business in a responsible way, the ESG stuff has become table stakes. We need to make sure we're doing that right. But then we need to think very hard about the balance of the positive and negative externalities and not just net it out. That's why kind of carbon allowances aren't as good as just taking carbon out of the year. Companies need to start taking a very realistic and, and kind of candid view about the negative externalities to their products and begin to address them. And they're going to need to find ways, as I said, it keeps going back to changes in the business model. You need to find ways of taking these negative externalities out of your products in a way that you can still make money for your shareholders. Yeah, no, tobacco, uh, as you say, a very controversial topic. And um, maybe we can touch on elements of it and I, maybe to do with... Um, uh, later on, uh, the question of divestment, because that's a strategy that um, is uh, on the table, shall we say, when we look at fossil fuel companies and one which has already been in place with with respect to uh, tobacco. But um, I, this question, and I, I did say at the beginning <laughs> that to try not to uh, <laughs> to get way down with jargon, but this question, I guess it's called, uh, if I understand correctly, double materiality. I mean, surely this is a tremendously important question. How much has been done? And what is the lay of the land with respect to this, what they call double materiality? I mean, for investors, clearly, okay, so there are economic risks associated with ECG. But, you know, from our perspective, we want to know, you know, which are the companies that are creating the largest and the most significant and impactful externalities? And we want information on this. And here's another point which we should discuss. We don't just want information. We want more than that. We should think about sanctions. We should think about things like that. Maybe we can discuss that question of, you know, from information to sanctions uh, later on. But that question of double materiality, of getting good information, standardized information on what companies are doing, what their negative externalities are. Where are we with that, Robert? So in simple terms, I mean, I think the language is a little awkward. The double materiality thing is something that came out of the EU when they were working with their non-finance reporting directive, which is not called the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. And this is... You know, this has been a big controversy, and there's something interesting that happened recently we can talk about in a second. So in kind of simple terms, single materiality would be what the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board does. And, you know, I was the founding chairman of that. So, okay, you know, as I was saying, what are the things that ESG issues and operations and activities that you need to be managing in a responsible way because they affect your ability to create value for shareholders over the long term? You can be doing that and producing products and services that have negative externalities. That's where the double materiality thing comes in. So you've got the ISSB, which is really focused on single materiality, those things that matter to investors. Then there will be those issues that don't matter to investors or don't matter now because they can in the future. That's the notion of dynamic materiality, but they matter to the world. They matter to society. So the example that comes up a lot when you contrast the what the CSRD is doing and what the ISSB is doing is that, uh, and it's really, I think, more a question of just timing and focus. But, you know, when you talk to people in the EU, the example that always comes up is biodiversity. So ecosystem services, you know, the damages that are being done to the biosphere, 
those things aren't necessarily being considered by investors as relevant to a company because it's not clear that it's impacting their ability to create value, even over the long term. But those things matter to society. So this idea of double materiality is we want to know not just about those ESG issues that matter to investors. We want to know about those things that companies are doing that make the world a worse place, can make the world a better place. And double materiality is about having companies report on those, even if those aren't in the short-term investor relevance. So kind of that's the short version of it. And it's a very heated debate, I can tell you. Yes. Is the momentum there, Robert? You know, the the, the, the single materiality, you get that. But what what's going on? This, this is surely a, a very, uh, I mean, you said it already. It's a crucial question. What what momentum is there? What real um, emphasis is there on putting in place standards to get measures of the, this uh, these externalities, these the impact? Look, let's be let's be realistic and practical. We're at the we're at the very early stages for single materiality when it comes to sustainability reporting. The ISSB has only recently been formed. You know, it has a chair, Emmanuel Faber from Danone. Maybe you can explain what the ISSB is, Robert Jack. Ah, yes. So in the fall of last year, the IFRS Foundation, which is the body that oversees the International Accounting Standards Board, which establishes international financial reporting standards, which is basically the standards that companies use for their financial reports, income statement, balance sheet, footnotes, stuff like that. Uh, we have in the US, US GAAP, which is under the Financial Accounting Standards Board. They put out a consultation, and this is quite a, quite a leap forward to establish what they now call the International Sustainability Standards Board. And the idea is to do for sustainability reporting what the ISB is doing for financial reporting. Until that point, we had SASB, we had Global Reporting Initiative, you know, kudos to them. They were the first ones to start. A couple of friends of mine started it. Their definition of materiality was really, they didn't use this term then, but it was more of a double materiality. It was an externality. The focus is on stakeholders. So what you saw of all over time, as investors and others became, you know, interested in seeing the relevance of sustainability both to the world and to companies. You had SASB, you had GRI, you had CDSB, you had CDPHs, had you know TCFD. So there's all these acronyms, but these are all basically IRC, International Integrated Reporting Council. These are essentially initiatives or organizations, and there was no common uh, kind of foundation for what the standards were or enforcement mechanisms. So the International Sustainability Standards Board has been formed went through a 90-day consultation period, investors wrote in, companies wrote in, lots of arguments about should it just do single materiality or double materiality. So they now have a chair, Emmanuel Faber, who was the CEO of Danone. They have a vice chair, Sue Lloyd, who is with the ISB. They will be filling in their board of around uh, 12, 13, 14 people over the next couple of months. Uh, last week, they issued exposure drafts that are now officially in the public domain for climate disclosure and their sustainability framework. So that'll be a comment period for 120 days. About a week before the SEC issued its you know, proposed ruling on climate disclosure, the FRAG, the European uh, Financial Reporting Advisory Group to the EU for its Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive will issue theirs at the end of April. So it's early stages, right? We're in very early stages of just trying to put these organizations together 
to create a body that sets standards. You have to go through a consultation period, then you have to get them approved, then you have to give companies time to implement them. And with the ISSB, it is a standard setting body. It doesn't have authority to require companies to do it. Its authority comes from countries saying, you will use this. So the EU says, if you're a listed company in the EU, you have to use international financial reporting standards. Will they kind of take that same position or will the FRAC thing be different? We have to see how that happens. Um, so very, very early stages. And then when you get to questions of impact, it's even harder because if you're going to be really technically correct about it, it's sort of the outcomes put in context. So, you know, the carbon emissions all go up in the air. And when you read the exposure draft of the ISSB, you know, it talks about impact. But if you think about water, water is a very local phenomenon. So, you know, if you're a company operating in a place where the water table is fine and there's plenty of it and the farmers have got the water they need, I mean, I don't know anything about water. But, you know, you could be doing things that, um, you know, really aren't that bad compared to a situation where there's lots of constraints to demand on the water resources and the impact that you're having on those water resources are very high because, again, water is the local phenomenon. So, um, you know, we're all kind of in the early stages on this thing here, but at least we've started. And this is another, let me just say one thing. This is, this is another change in narrative that's really important to note. I mean, I, I did a green paper with Richard Barker, my colleague at Oxford. Should FASB and ISB be responsible for setting standards for non-financial information? And that was just in 2018. And then like two years later, the IFRS Foundation comes out with a consultation it wasn't that long ago when you were talking about standards for sustainability reporting, people were going, the predominant narrative was, we don't need regulation. The regulations, you know, too painful, it's too slow, it's too much of a pain in the ass, too expensive. Market forces are sorted out. That's ridiculous. We didn't get financial accounting standards and reporting requirements from market forces. And so we did this debate at Oxford Union, and it was two to one that we should have regulation. A lot of people changed their minds. So We've gone from ESG as philanthropy to ESG as value relevant. We've gone from standards for sustainability reporting should be done by market forces to, you know, we need an internationally credible body with support by governments to do it. These are big changes in the last five or six or seven years. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, very interesting. How did double materiality slip out of the uh, framework then? I don't know what you mean by slip slip out of what framework. Well, you said it's not at the moment included by SSB, um, or is it? Did I misunderstand you there? Okay, oh, in terms of that framework, uh, no, it's not. I mean, you know, that was the big question, and what the I, IFRS, and then under that now with the ISSB, you know, what they know how to do, what their core competence is, is to develop standards for information reported by companies that are relevant to investors. They are not a multi-stakeholder body. GRI, Global Reporting Initiative, is a multi-stakeholder body. As I said, SASB, when we started SASB, it was basically materiality is kind of investor materiality, to oversimplify it. GRI from the beginning has been externalities. And, you know, the decision was, and I think the right one, that the ISSB, because it's competence, is around investor-relevant information to focus there, but not to ignore. I mean, nobody said they should ignore it. When Richard Barker and I wrote our comment letter to the IFS, he said, look, they should collaborate with, you know, the Global Sustainability Standards Board under GRI. We had some recommendations for how it might be organized differently. 
So then for a while, there was this perception that the ISSB was going down the path of single materiality and all kinds of people were mad about that. And then GRI was, you know, collaborating with FRAG over there in the EU and they were doing the double materiality thing. So it was like ISSB is single materiality, FRAG and GRI double materiality. And like it's this big contest. Now, here's what's interesting. It was just last week that the IFRS Foundation and the Global Reporting Initiative, and I'm writing about this, you know, right now, in fact, announced a collaboration, a memorandum of understanding that they're going to work together. Okay, so that's great. So then, you know, you look at the Global Reporting Initiative, you say, this is wonderful. You know, they have a voice in the EU under FRAG. You know, they're collaborating with the ISSB. Let's develop kind of a global baseline so that we're measuring carbon the same way, whether in the United States, you know, whether in the ISSB or under, under FRAG. And then you've got this collaboration between the ISSB and the GRI to identify those issues that right now may not be investor relevant, but could very well change. And investors and the universal owners that are thinking of system level effects and then geos, you know, they can actually kind of make these things become relevant. So it's a way of making sure that they're not just totally only narrowly focused in the short term yeah, on yeah. investor relevant, but they've yeah. kind of got a way of scanning, scanning the landscape. So I'm very encouraged about that development. I got to tell you. Yeah, very, very interesting. But how big a step is it from kind of standards to disclosure to taking action to penalizing to responding to what is the process by which these standards uh, facilitate good behavior, shall we say? I mean, you know, it's a big step. And I think you're right to say facilitate. I mean, what, what they do is they make it possible for investors and other stakeholders to engage with companies where there's this shared reality that, okay, we've agreed that this is what your carbon emissions are. We've agreed that this is your DNI metrics, whatever they turn out to be so that we're not arguing just like we don't argue about are your revenues really this or your profits really that, although even that happens some. But you know the extent to which companies change, that depends upon the board. It depends upon executive leadership. It depends upon whether investors are engaging with them or ignoring them or trying to invest them. It depends upon how open the companies are to engagement. ExxonMobil wasn't open for years historically, and we saw where that got them with the engine number one campaign. If you look at what's going on in the investment community, big trend is big investors, both active and passive, growing their engagement and stewardship teams, where they're beginning to realize that, you know, we can't just easily divest this thing or sell the stock. I mean, we need, we're going to hold this stock. We need to engage with the company. The company needs to be willing to engage with them. And here, ironically, and we can get to this later, I think activist investors they actually, they, they know how to create changes in corporate behavior. So to the extent to which they're starting to widen the aperture and recognizing that issues around ESG or issues around impact are relevant and they start to weigh, and I think that's good too. It's really about uh, kind of corporate accountability. And so who holds corporations to account? Shareholders do, NGOs do, boards do. Yes, no, it's very interesting you say that because uh, some people I've spoken to might argue, say, well, that's all well and good. And kind of saying, well, the investors will do this and the investors will do that. But actually, we really uh, need the government to be doing this because we've seen how, you know, when we rely on, uh, you know, the rhetoric of corporations or indeed of investors, quite often that doesn't deliver. And quite often uh, the promises don't um, 
you know, uh, aren't what they, they they seem to be. And also, you know, this we just had the, the, the new uh, IPCC report. You know, it's become urgent. We don't have a lot of time. Surely what we need is, uh, as well as this, but really uh, driving this in, in an important way is, is, is regulation. And I'm just wondering what you, what you think about that and, and, and how you feel the temperature is there. I mean, we've seen in America with the SEC, there certainly uh, seems to be a, a, a change there. But, um, you know, what do you think, Robert? I mean, the whole government thing is also something that's a bit above my pay grade. But I think, look, you're right. So I think there's been too much governments trying to skip their responsibility in some ways by, okay, the investment community is big and powerful and they've got these direct relationships with the company. So we'll count on them to do it. I mean, that's not going to be enough. So governments play in a lot of different ways. I mean, governments, you know, the SEC, if we take the United States, so they've come up with a proposed rule. I mean, things are crazy in the United States, as you know, as I said, the governor of West Virginia, excuse me, the attorney general of West Virginia, it's already said he's going to sue, wrote a letter to Allison Aaron Lee, one of the commissioners a year ago. To block so that, you know, say, no, you, you can't implement this rule. And there's like legal issues around administrative authority we won't get into. So simple things like, you know, does the government, is the government going to support and require high quality disclosures, let's just say on carbon or not? Um, that's an issue, right? Are they going to monitor the quality of the reporting or not? You know, that's an issue. Um, clarifying fiduciary duty. Can investors take account of sustainability factors? Or are they having their hands tied behind their back? Government said what company law is going to be. You could have the government, you know, have the corporate forum, and we won't get into the detail on this in the United States, be public benefit corporations. Governments allocate capital. Biden's trying to get these different bills through. Are you going to invest in infrastructure? Governments decide in the developed markets to what extent they're going to make contributions to developing markets. Um, and that's all kind of the big issues around kind of on a global level, the energy transition so that you can support these economies so that they can make the energy transition so they can grow. Investors don't make those kind of investments, you know, in emerging markets, the 100 or 200 billion or whatever the number is, I can't keep track. So um, I think the role of governments is absolutely crucial, but look at how hard it is. Look at how politicized it is in the United States. Look at, you know, kind of what advice some of these countries are in. I mean, Germany made a bad call when they got out of nuclear in my view. And, you know, Merkel thought that she could trust Putin. And so now they're heavily, heavily dependent upon Russia for its natural gas. And so you've got these issues now around energy security. Um, and then you say, OK, we've got energy security and that's important, but maybe we need more natural gas. And then that says, well, that's bad for the energy transition. But, gee, you know, if you don't have energy security and you've got Russia committing all these atrocious crimes in Ukraine and people are still buying their oil and gas, Maybe over the long term, it'll sort of, you know, spur more of an energy transition to, to other sources. But, but what if, you know, what if those sources are going to have to be more natural gas than people want? I mean, you know, this whole thing, as I said, you know, this, this issue of the war in Ukraine has put energy policy and energy transition in a very stark geopolitical context. That's for sure. And still unfolding. Um right now um i wanted to ask you about uh, something you mentioned a little bit earlier which is um now wh wh when i asked about the uh role of corporations i suppose in uh dealing with the environment or indeed the the, the opportunities there um 
some people I've spoken to have, have been very enthusiastic about the possibilities for corporations. And indeed, corporations themselves have manifestly shown tremendous interest in the COP26. There were more lobbyists there than many countries. Uh, huge commitment and interest uh, in this uh, in various different ways. Should we be worried that, um, you know, these organizations, which are arguably, and this is the point I want to come to, profit maximizing, or they are uh, organizations that have, uh, you know, uh, shareholder primacy embedded in them, or, and, and this is something you, you mentioned earlier, that that may not be, that that's an interpretation and may not be the reality and so forth. But um, should we be worried that uh, these organizations which are, are operate to, to, to generate profits and arguably uh, to maximize profits. I mean, I just saw Scadden Arps, a recent piece, you know, last year, and it just, you know, it basically says in Delaware, court decisions have clearly established the shareholder primacy rule applies. In short, directors are by duty to make their decisions looking solely to the best interests of shareholders. Now, I know there's a lot of debate on the stakeholders and so forth, but um, that's a recent piece. And uh, I'm just wondering, um, you know, I mean, it, the reality is that only, you know, only shareholders can, only, the board only has fiduciary responsibilities. Is this true to shareholders? They're the only ones who can su sue the board for breach of duties, you know, can approve major, they are, uh, on the face of it, uh, pretty uh, central. And I'm just wondering, do you think that's the case? And if it is the case, should, should how should we think about that when we see the, the enthusiasm and the, the way which large corporations are getting involved and really driving many aspects of the SDGs and indeed the transition? I mean, that's a whole bunch of stuff in there. So, you know, the companies that say that they all, you know, support, you know, dealing with climate change and this and that, I'll I'm a little bit cynical about, you know, what companies say and what companies do. I'd like to know, you know, what they're lobbying for. I'd like to see if they're going to support the SEC, if they're a U.S. company, if they're going to support the SEC's proposal to have, you know, some client disclosure rules, um, you know, continue that train of thought. The scattered ARPS thing, to me, this is where ideology and law sort of get confounded and murky with each other. I mean, that's just, you know, Scadnarps, okay, so who am I to argue with Scadnarps? So let me invoke Leo Strine, my friend Leo Strine. He's somebody you should talk to for your series. He's the former chief justice of the Delaware Supreme Court. If anybody knows Delaware law, it's Leo Strine. I've written some stuff with Leo Strine. Um, three ways to put your corporate purpose into action. We did with Tim Yeomans of Federated Hermes EOS. And the first is a statement of purpose from the board of directors. And the second is an integrated report. You know, and then public benefit corporations. So under Delaware law, as Leo would put it, directors may take account of other stakeholders if they think it's in the long-term interest of shareholders in the corporation. Under a public benefit corporation, they shall. So it's made a shall. So just the way Skadenarps and what you quoted to me, just the way Skadenarps wrote that is, you know, kind of using a legal pen to reinforce an ideology, which is inconsistent with the law, or they're kind of saying they don't believe that taking account of other stakeholders is relevant to shareholder value creation. So that's interesting to me. And it's, you know, Skadden Arps is a big name. So that's why I was asking you kind of, who did they do that for? And, you know, where was it published? Um, 
I mean, there's a, there's a group called the Commonwealth Climate and Law Initiative that produced this very interesting paper that I've written a little bit about to summarize it. That basically says, you know, when it comes to climate change, U.S. board directors, there's a very real fiduciary duty that board directors have around climate change. And it was signed by a bunch of lawyers, academic lawyers, people from law firms. So this piece by Skadden Arps just seems to be more of an ideological piece than an informed legal opinion, in my view. Yes, I, I suppose. Um, I, I, who was it? I spoke to uh, Joel Cohen uh, from uh, B Corporations and uh uh, some time ago now, but he was talking about this, that effectively, you know, it's the interpretation of the Delaware Supreme Court that determines. So t- the degree to which they, they, you know, and as, as you say, this is a subject which is under debate. Those people who say, well, this is, a, you know, an interpretation of, a, of you know, the fiduciary responsibility. And it's actually, and there's, a, you know, a big debate and a lot of thinking going around about stakeholders and moving from shareholders, stakeholders and so forth. There's plenty of room under Delaware law. Yeah under the business judgment rule for directors. Yeah. So if you think that over the long term, and you're not just chasing the quarterly earnings, if you think over the long term, the best interest of the corporation to be able to continue to deliver value for shareholders is to take account of the stakeholders that represent the most material issues. You know, there's nothing in Delaware law that prevents you from doing so. Good, good to get your your, your thoughts on that. Um, very interesting. I'd like to get you move on. This is fascinating stuff, uh, Robert. On in terms of investors and uh, a question, important question. I'm just wondering how serious do you think investors are about sustainability? We talked about you know the fact that uh, we need more than uh, investors taking positions and uh, their commitments and so forth. But but how serious do you think investors are about sustainability, really? And what would you say reflects that? So two or three years ago, I published an article in the Harvard Business Review called The Investor Revolution, Shareholders Are Getting Serious About Sustainability. And the basic point was that companies were probably the first to the table. They started talking about sustainability. They had sustainability reports. The GRI was started in 1997. And, you know, it was, you know, a lot of greenwashing. It was kind of second-class citizen, corporate social responsibility person. Investors didn't care and companies would whine about it, that they weren't getting credit for it, but they weren't really talking about it very much in their quarterly calls. And then it kind of switched. And um, a number of things are driving that. You know, Some is this empirical research that I was talking about where investors saw that, again, it's not just like taking every sustainability issue into account. Those material issues are relevant to value creation. So I think investors um, you know, are taking it more seriously. Do they need to take it even more seriously? Sure. I mean, some of it is a competency thing. You used to have kind of the portfolio managers were the first-class citizens, the ESG and proxy voting group were the second-class citizens, just like the CSR citizens were second-class citizens compared to the CFO. But what you're starting to see is that the portfolio managers, they are taking responsibility for thinking about what the material ESG issues are, beginning to think about impact, starting to have those conversations with CEOs and with CFOs and the investor relation people. You know, there's a time that it takes to make this transition, you know, kind of the older portfolio managers are probably less there than the younger ones. And so I think it's very real. You know, you're starting to see it in terms of more engagement, as I said, you're starting to see it in terms of the increasing votes in support of, you know, proposals around environmental disclosures and, and other actions by companies. Uh, but these are big organizations, you know, things move slowly. Um, 
But, you know, when there is greenwashing, all these funds that are being put out, as I said, as you know, ESG funds, I mean, a lot of that is, you know, kind of pretty thin gruel. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I think they are. Is um, it good enough, do you think? I mean, I mean, it's never good enough, right? It's never good enough. Larry Fink gets a lot of attention and he his, you know, statement about uh, corporate responsibility or, or, you know, stakeholders and stuff like that. And, but, you know, they voted against 80 percent of climate related resolutions in 2020. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of time. The financial support that uh, is provided by banks and so forth, um, you know, which is just really astonishing in terms of fossil fuel investment, you know, this is very significant. Some figures in the region of $4 trillion into financing fossil fuel investment. You know, this is existential. That can't be right, can it? So, you know, at a macro level, no. And I, but, but you bring up banks, and I think that's interesting because, you know, my view on, I think, divesting a stock, you know, doesn't really mean all that much. You know, in, you know providing bank financing in whatever form to drill for more oil and gas that, you know, that's where the rubber is meeting the road because if the banks weren't providing that financing, you know, you wouldn't be getting the drilling for the new oil and gas. And so, and you have less visibility into that. You got plenty of visibility as to who owns a stock. I mean, it's harder to know the loans that are being given uh, to companies that are, you know, kind of drilling for oil, if we're going to take that example. So, Look, I think that's a really important issue to think about. And I think there's more pressure in some ways that could come, you know, in the bond markets. And you're starting to see things like sustainability link bonds and green bonds, and some of it's kind of good and some of it's sort of greenwashing. But again, you have to put this in the context of, you know, we need to be realistic about the energy transition. So I think you need to take it on a case-by-case basis. And then you need to think about, again, the geopolitics of it all. So I've done some research with a professor at Columbia Business School named Shivaram Rajgopal. And we did this little kind of quick and dirty study around a carbon tax and what it would look like for oil and gas majors in Europe and the U.S. compared to the national oil companies. And it's pretty, you know, it's kind of scary because, you know, if they can't pass this tax along, you know, they basically are all losing money. But the last man standing is Saudi Aramco. Right. I mean, it's an SOE. Government's never going to impose a carbon tax on it. It's the lowest cost of oil production. So you need to think about, all right, unless we're transitioning these oil and gas companies to another model, we cannot finance them. And, you know, whether it's bank financing or whatever. But then if you haven't kind of solved the demand problem, there's the supply issue, the demand problem. If you still got the demand problem. And so this is like, you know, OPEC and Saudi Arabia you know, in Venezuela, making it like a bandit, and they've got the lowest cost oil, and it's still pouring out there, you know, that's not good. Who wants to be, you know, personally, I don't want to be buying oil from Saudi Arabia. It's another state I don't think much of. They killed Khashoggi. It's nuts. Yeah. yeah. And the IPCC report has was delayed because of a pretty fierce debate, I understand. Yeah. And then I heard, I mean, I didn't know this until the other day, the UAE is going to host COP28. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what? What? No. Um, a, a topic you touched on there, uh, Robert, and and I know you've got uh, strong views, um, uh, or views that you've articulated at least clearly um, about divestment. And I'm just wondering. Um, and again, you know, um, uh, looking at fossil fuel companies, um, they are 
in some way, you know, uh, bad actors. Um, they have, you know, uh, been systematically, um, it's a general statement and it, it, it differ from company to company, but, uh, you know, systematically involved in lobbying and misinformation about uh, and holding back uh, change uh, in, in terms of climate change and so forth. Um, and uh, continuing to do so, uh, significant sums of money involved uh, in lobbying. Um, there was a quote recently, uh, the, you know, which, which, which struck me um, from the, uh, so yeah, but anyway, this, for the last five years anyway, there was something like where the recent figures, $170 million spent on lobbying, almost 600 top level of fish meetings with the top level officials from the European Commission. What, what I want to ask about is uh, divestment is a growing phenomenon when it comes to the fossil fuel industry and dealing with it. And I'd like to talk about that. And I just suppose I'm, I'm stating, as, as you said, uh, a little bit the obvious when you said, you know, about tobacco and the impact, but um, the, 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 you know, impact of, of fossil fuel uh, and, and the fact that, you know, the last, the most recent IPCC report just says this is the key. We just got to keep fossil fuel in the ground. But um, so where was this? This piece here is that one of the senior figures in, in Shell basically uh, talked about the fact that uh, when it came to the Paris Agreement, that it was really, in a large part, elements of it from what they had basically put together. They say we put together a straw proposal. Many elements of that straw proposal appeared in the Paris Agreement, another straw proposal for the rule book. Um, so we're talking about uh, Article 6 and carbon markets and so forth. So anyway, I, I guess that's obvious, but just to say that they're influential, they're, it's it's ongoing. How, how does one deal with that? Um, you you don't think divestment is a good strategy. I'm just wondering, um, we talked about the fact that we need to move to renewable energy. Is this idea flawed? The idea that through divestment, um, you will increase the cost of capital for fossil fuel. We've certainly seen significant increases in the cost of capital. How much of that's been driven by divestment? Um, divestment has worked before, and it's it may may work through a social you know uh, mechanism, social license, and things like that. But it, it does seem to have a, an impact. Um, and I'm just wondering what you think of uh, divestment. If the cost of capital is going up on fossil fuels the cost of capital is going down for renewables. Surely, from a market perspective, that's a rather ideal scenario if you want a transition. Sorry, that was a long, involved, <laughs> confusing point. But I, I, did you get where I'm coming from there, Robert? But, you know, I mean, look, but it wasn't a question. And fair enough, I mean, it was a statement. But I'm asking I mean, you if know. you think that the change in the relative, would that be a good thing if the cost of capital is going up for fossil fuel, it's going down for renewable energy, if divestment is a part of that. But that's the question, right? So look, you know, if the cost of capital is going up in oil and gas, that's good. And if it's going down in renewables, that's good. You know, is the cost of capital going up for divestment because of divestment? What's the evidence for that? Well, the, I think the evidence suggests it's, it hasn't in a substantial way, but it has but contributed but you're, to you're, it. You want it to be that way. In what, right? in what sense? As opposed to it is that way. The cost of capital could be going up because, you know, people are saying, listen, you know, I just I'm pretty dubious about drilling for more oil. And I think if this is going to be more stranded assets, more likely than not, you know, so I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to invest in this. You know, if you've still got the same amount of shares sloshing around in the market out there and it's not clear 
you know, how, so I think as again, more sort of on the bank financing side, that's important. If people want to divest for values reasons, this look good. I just don't want to be making money off of a company that I think is driving the planet, you know, to hell. I get that. Okay. Um, but I don't understand. I remain to be convinced how that's going to change the behavior of that company. What engine number one is trying to do, and it wasn't a sustainability argument. It was basically an economic argument because they weren't recognizing the interchanges and they were continuing to drill. Their you know, return on capital was going down because they had a CEO that just could do whatever he wanted because you had a board that didn't have any energy expertise. And so they put three people on the board. That's to try to start making changes you know, in kind of how ExxonMobil is investing its money and should it be continuing to invest. To me, that is more powerful than a bunch of people saying, well, I'm just going to go sell X on mobile stock and let someone else worry about it. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And as you say, I, 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 I don't know, it's not my area, but um, in terms of, you know, the, the, the exact impact of divestment. But surely there's a logic in, in, in the sense that, you know, we talk about shareholder activism. We talk about engagement. You know, David Blood was recently interviewed and he, he was saying, well, you know, engagement is, is fine, but there's got to be a sanction and the sanction is divestment. So presumably he thinks divestment is impactful. And you hear this from others saying, well, you know, if we're going to engage, we need to have something to, you know, hold over their heads, as it were. And they, they use divestment. So presumably, companies don't like to be divested of. I mean, they don't look at, you know, David Blood, I know him, he's, he's a lot smarter about these things than I am. But I, it's just one example, just one yeah. example. It's not on you. No, but I, and I know David has taken the position that it's like, why continue to bang your head against the wall of these oil and gas companies because they don't want to engage anyway. And so, I get that point. I mean, if you can sort of use this as part of a more general strategy of social program, you know, and we're going to divest if, you know, you don't split the chairman and CEO and we're going to divest if you don't, um, you know, kind of change the position of the board. Legal and general has got their climate impact pledge. They do something similar. There's 80 companies and they kind of target them and they say, we want to do this and do that. Climate Action 100 has got what they're doing with the 167 or so largest carbon emitters. So I think kind of having that as a threat you know, and trying to use that as a way of creating changes. I mean, I can get that, but just saying, you know what, I'm just going to sell the stock and let somebody else worry about it. That's where I don't see, you know, how that creates any pressure for change. If you're doing your divesting as part of some larger campaign, you want to kind of make, you know, a big visible issue of something. I mean, it's already happened in tobacco, but look, it's, you know, the most highly excluded industry is tobacco. They're doing just fine for the wrong reasons, including duplicity of governments, as I was talking about. So I'm just, you know, I'm very skeptical. You know, about how much you're going to get, how much you're going to get from divestment. Yeah, I was interested to, to, to get your perspective there, Robert. You, you you take a very pragmatic perspective, I think, on, on many of these questions. I'm just wondering if you took your pragmatic uh, lens off for a little bit. Do you have a wish list of a few things that you'd like to see happen, that you'd like to see change, that would really, you, you know, uh, exponentially, or move it up a level, the, the whole transition that you're talking about? All right. So I know we're coming to the end, so I'll try and be crisp here. I think there's a wish list. I wish that we could have a more sort of realistic and less sort of ideologically grounded on both ends of the spectrum understanding of the energy transition and what's involved. I mean, I just, you know, got this news flash on my phone since I turned off the sound of my PC that Boston Globe says, you know, we're heading towards disaster and I haven't seen the report yet, as you haven't either. So 
Um, I think we need to take this really seriously. But then we need to say, you know, what if what if we need to have nuclear, you know, and palatable as that may be for some people? I think we need to get some realism about the energy transition and the mix of energy we're going to need for how long. So that's one thing. I think a second thing would be sort of, you know, if I could wave a magic wand, you know, the sort of um, corporate form, it would be, you know, public benefit corporations by whatever name, even though I think there's still plenty of room for people to pay attention to stakeholders under the Delaware kind of C-Corp. I would love to see a common baseline for carbon reporting. Um, I would hope that the SEC ruling goes through enough. Um, Probably companies report even if it doesn't, but if you had agreement between the ISSB and the SEC and an FRAG on carbon reporting. Uh, and you could get that over the next two years and pretty much every listed company was doing it. That'd be a wish list. And maybe my fourth thing in this, we don't have time to do this. We can maybe do another time. As I said, I'm doing a big study in private equity. It's a huge industry. It's $7 trillion in assets. It's going to double in the next five or six years. Uh, it can be a positive force for change. I mean, they can actually be much more serious. Well, they can be serious about sustainability, but they have more mechanisms and tools to put this into practice because they control the asset. So you've got this notion of, gee, the oil and gas companies are selling off stuff into private equity. And um, you know, then you don't get any more information and they're managing this in a less responsible way and they continue to drill. The other argument is you can say, you know, private equity is the place where, you know, these assets that are brown become greener and you don't continue to drill for more oil and you kind of manage them for cash during the energy transition and you have a a different business model. So uh, I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, the the research I've done was focused on leading GPs and LPs, and I'm not saying that that's the norm, but one of the things I'm doing in this article with some friends of mine at BCG, Vinay Chandler and Dave Young, say, look, here is a picture of what the private equity industry could do and be, and here's how to do it and let's get on with it. So, um, so that's my wish list. How's that? Very interesting indeed. And um, uh, as, as you said there, the this private equity, this ties in very much with this question of the transition as well. Um, so look forward to uh, seeing that research and maybe we can uh, have another conversation, Robert. But I really do appreciate you taking the time today. And uh, It's my pleasure. Always good talking to you. For yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today, the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally, and importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.